you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also at the Hangar in Montana and Purpose Church in Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study here today. We've been doing a series entitled Explore God. And today we're going to deal with the question, is Christianity too narrow? One of the things that are most offensive about Christianity today in our pluralistic society. Pluralism simply means there are a lot of different religions, a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different worldviews, particularly here in Southern California. And uh, in in dealing with that, uh, many people will make the accusation that we believe Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to be right with God. They consider Christianity too narrow. And so that's the question that we're going to be dealing with today. Now, before we get into it, I want to share a couple of uh, insights with you from a couple of different people. And the first one, I'll tell you, is my new favorite preacher, okay? And he's not even a preacher. He's a hip-hop artist. But I love what he has to say on this whole subject of is following after Christ, is that too narrow? Let's watch this together. We think that narrow means intolerant, right? And intolerance somehow is the, is the cardinal sin of our world, right? If you're playing a guitar, I mean, how many G's are there? How many notes? How many ways can you play a G? There's, there's one way to play a G. You're either on key or off key. Is that intolerant? Is that narrow? Is that unfair? No, it's beautiful. There's, there's a way to play this note. It's beautiful. The step back is like, well, well, what's wrong with that, right? And narrow in what way, right? Narrow in the way of being clear and being concise and being decisive and being attainable, right? Right? Yeah, in in that sense, absolutely. But isn't that a good narrow? Like, isn't that, aren't these good things that like, it's not like I'm just, I'm shooting up, I'm, you know, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that one of them sticks you know what I'm saying? Like, that's broad, right? But that's, I mean, come on now. Like, who's trying to live like that? That you just toss up stuff and hope that something stays on there? Like, nah, man. Like, tell me the bullseye. You know? Tell me the target. How do I fix this? How was man made right with God? I'm going to be like, well, you know, I ain't figured it out. Oh, no. No, I won't. Who has? Nobody's figured it out. Right? No, I need you to tell me. What's, what's, how do we get this? So in my mind, I'm like, and why is narrow bad? Narrow's, in a lot of contexts, good, right? Doesn't mean it lacks grace, doesn't mean it ma- lacks love. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Now, I think a lot of people struggle to believe because some Christians make it incredible. Um, take away the possibility of making the faith beautiful and winsome incredible because of because of the way that we live and the things that we do. Now, <laughs> there is something funny uh, funny about that and a little ironic. So Christians are hypocrites. Okay. Yes. I am a hypocrite. Can I just say that? I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I, um, many of the things that I say that I espouse to believe, um, I don't live. And I am, and I know actually lots of, of people who aren't Christians who are who are who live better lives than I do. Uh, one of my closest friends is a Sikh, and he is a much more disciplined, uh, much uh, more 
self-controlled person than I am. But see, the funny thing about Christianity is that hypocrisy actually does not undermine the credibility of the Christian faith because in some ways, hypocrisy is necessary. Uh, because what it what is required to be a Christian is not that you're good and moral and squeaky clean and have nothing wrong with you. The first thing that is actually required to become a Christian is that you admit that you're jacked up and need help. That's like the only thing that's required is that you know that you are so messed up that you need grace. So in some sort of weird kind of ironic way, it requires people who are messed up. It requires people who know that their lives are not put together. So this is why when you go into a church, you find a bunch of people who are hypocrites because we are. All of us are. We're all broken. We're all messed up. And now that doesn't excuse Christians doing and saying stupid things by any means. But what I'm saying is that the stupidity of Christians does not discredit the reality of the Christian faith. If anything, it points to how important and necessary Jesus is. Uh, because Jesus is there not to make squeaky clean moral people. Jesus is there to save broken, messed up people, of which the church is full of them. Yeah, that's what I'd say to that. The only absolute truth today is that there is no absolute truth. Jesus actually created a thing called a traditional tolerance. And it's been replaced today by something called positive tolerance. Let me explain what I mean, the difference. Jesus is the one that came into the world and introduced traditional tolerance. That is, that if somebody disagrees with you, you don't kill them, okay? That was a new idea that Jesus brought. Love your enemies. Treat them respectfully, kindly. Dialogue with them. Woo them, okay? That was a new thought until Jesus and that is that uh, you, you respectfully engage them, you talk humbly, graciously, um, and you love those that disagree with you. That was traditional uh, tolerance. But that's been replaced today with positive tolerance. That is, no, not only do I have to respect your point of view, but I have to say that your point of view is equally truthful to another viewpoint. All truth is equal. It's all the same. As long as you are sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you can back it up, whether there is evidence for it, whether there is uh, evidence to back that thing up, whether it makes sense, as long as you're sincere, it's okay, and it's all equal. All truth is the same. And today you are considered intolerant if you want to analyze truth and say, this is true, this is false, this is more true than this is. Uh, Nikki Gumbel writes, We are all fallen human beings, Christians and non-Christian alike, and none of us can find God by ourselves. But God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, who is the truth. Only in Jesus Christ do we find infallible truth. That is not to say that Christians are infallible, or that our understanding of the truth is infallible, but that God's revelation in Jesus Christ is infallible. He is the standard by which all truth claims must be examined. By putting other religions alongside God's revelation in Jesus Christ, we see that they contain both truth and error. There is a dark side to other religions. There is, of course, a dark side to the way Christianity is being used by some people. But there is no dark side to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. This is not arrogant or narrow-minded, as some would suggest. Now, a quote by C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, 
who eventually came to commit his life to Christ. If you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through and through 100%. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the most unusual ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, There is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. And so we ask the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Okay. Now, this is something that people don't realize, is that we didn't come up with this. Jesus did. Many times people look at Christians, oh, you're so insecure, You're so needy that you have this need to be right and everybody else wrong. So you came up with this whole thing, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. No, we didn't. Jesus is the one that taught this. And it is an inconvenient truth. Life would be so much simpler if there were multiple ways to be made right with God. We're putting together our budget for 2016. And how much easier it would be to just with the whole budget just say, what will meet our needs the most? Let's just spend all of our money making our carpets as new as possible and our paint as fresh as possible. Let's just put all of our energy into us, us, us. But the inconvenient truth is that we believe that Jesus is the only way. And so we build our entire budget about around that truth and outward focus changing our world for Christ. That's what we take our whole budget and every slice of it, we ask the question, will this reach people for Jesus? Will this reach people for Jesus? Will this share Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? It is an inconvenient truth. It would be much easier if it were not true. And yet, because it is true, we need to live our lives in that way. Jesus answered in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just like uh, propaganda the hip-hop artist said, you throw it all against the wall, and as long as you do it sincerely, it'll all work out in the end. I have a, a friend named Luther Estes, part of our church here. He was my children's math teacher. And he had this saying that I really got a kick out of. He said, math is unforgiving. Math is unforgiving, and it is. How many of you have ever helped your children with math? I'm so glad there are no video cameras on when I did that. You would not allow me to be my, your pastor if you saw me helping my kids with that. It's so frustrating, and I get, I confess to you, so impatient. I mean, there'll be eight steps to a math problem, and you can get seven out of the eight right, okay? That ought to get you something, right? But you get one step out of eight steps wrong, and the final answer is wrong. You can get seven right in a row and mess up on the eighth step of that math problem and the answer's wrong. You can mess up early on in number one or number two and get steps three, four, five, six, seven, and eight right. Still the thing is wrong in the end. Math is unforgiving. And we live our lives like this in every other area of life. Engineers say there's a right way to build a building and a wrong way to build a building. 
Doctors say there's a right diagnosis and a wrong diagnosis. Uh, nurses say there is right medication and wrong medication. You get the wrong medication, medication, you'll kill a patient. You get the right medication, you'll cure a patient. Uh, computer programmers saying there's right input and wrong input. Uh, contractors say there's a right way to build a house and a wrong way to build a house. But somehow, when it comes to the most important question in life, how do I get right with God, we say all truth is equal. As long as you're sincere, I mean, nobody else does that in any other way of life. Nobody, no doctor says, you know what? I know I gave the wrong diagnosis, but boy, was I sincere when I gave it to you. So sorry you died. I am so sorry for that. You know, nobody says, no builder says, you know, I was so sincere when I built that house, and I'm so sorry it fell down after a year and a half. But, but you know what? I was sincere when I did it. And so simply, we apply in the area of truth what we, by instinct, apply in all other arenas of life. Not all truth is equal. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Number one, he is unique in his qualification. And and I tell you, there's a little thing in here that I put, and it's weird, and I'm probably the only person that enjoys it, but I put it in for my enjoyment. The first time I ever used that line, he's unique in his qualification, the computer jumped in and put that little TM sign there. See that? It's not up here, but it's there in your study outline, like for trademark, you know, and it's totally random. We have no idea how it got there. It just, it just popped up, and so I had us leave it there because I thought, you know that verse that says, if we don't praise God, even the rocks and the, and the hills will, will praise him, the rocks and the trees will praise him? Well, if we don't say that he's unique, even the computers will jump in and say he's one in a million. I, I, it entertains me, but I'm, I'm so sorry, but we'll keep moving on. Um, Acts chapter 3 says he's the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the Christ. Now, in a couple of weeks, next week we talk about is Jesus really God, and then the week after that, is the Bible reliable? And so it's going to be the basis for these claims. But this claim is backed up by a book without error, a supernatural book. It is unbelievable how this book is without error, perfect in every way when it talks about history, when archaeology is discovered, fulfilled prophecy. Um, Do you know that if you take just a handful of just the prophecies about the coming of Jesus, for them to happen by accident is the same as you take one black ping-pong ball and put it in the middle of a sea of white ping-pong balls two feet deep covering the state of Texas. The chances that you could blindfold somebody and they would find that one ping-pong ball that's been marked by accident, is the same that just a handful of prophecies about Jesus would come true. And yet there are 300 different prophecies about Christ. Thousands of other prophecies about historical events. All have come true 100% of the time, even though given hundreds, if not thousands of years before. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. It backs up the miracles, particularly the resurrection. Many historians consider the resurrection of Jesus to be the most validated event in all of human history And because of all that evidence, we believe he is unique in his qualification. He is unique in his achievement. Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Number three, he is unique in his resurrection. Verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You go to the graves of Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Joseph Smith, and there are remains in those graves. And yet, the tomb of Jesus is empty. He is unique in his resurrection.
Now, if we believe that to be true, what do we say about other religions? And I want to talk about that for a few minutes, but before we do, uh, let's go back and look at this again. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the hardest things living in, in a society like ours is, is that um, there is such diversity and there's, there's so many different beliefs and so many different religions around us that it's very difficult for us to imagine that any one of these religions, uh, whether it be Christianity or Islam or any, any, any worldview really, would claim to have the market on the truth. A couple years ago, I was influenced by uh, an author and, and a man who was a missionary in India, and his name was Leslie Newbigin. And he told this parable. There's a story, there's an old story in India about a king and, a, and an elephant. And a king had an elephant, and he wanted to do an experiment. And so he brought in six blind men, and he asked them to tell him what the elephant was. And so the blind man, of course, began to feel around, and the first one felt the elephant and the side of the elephant and said, oh, it's a wall. And another man felt, felt the trunk and said, it's, it's a snake. And the other man felt the, the, the foot and said, it's a tree. And you get the point. He felt the ear. It was a fan. And so, and so of course, the point of the story is, and people often tell this um, in India, and, and it's become a popular story in, in our society as well, that the blind men are like the religion are like the various religions of the world. None of them see the elephant in whole, but they're all basically describing the same thing uh, with different angles. But not one of them could ever say that they have the full knowledge of the elephant. Here's the problem with that. And this was, I was really helped by this, uh, because what this, what this man, Leslie Newbigin, said is, the only way that anyone can ever come to that conclusion is if you are in the position of the king. The only way that you can ever say that each of the individual blind men um, only have part of the truth is if you are the king and you are looking down and seeing the whole picture, seeing the whole elephant, and are able to judge each of the blind men accordingly. And so the application to, to our time is this, is that I think when people say all religions are basically the same, that sounds really tolerant and it sounds really humble. But in reality, it's, it's kind of an arrogant claim. It's, it's sort of like saying you're in the position of the king, that you can see the whole picture and that each of the religions can only see a part of it. When it comes down to it, I think what I've realized is that we're all exclusivists. All of us are making exclusive claims, whether you say that God is a trinity, like we say in Christianity, or whether you say God is one, the way they do in Islam or Judaism, or the way, or if you say God is many, the way they do in Hinduism, or if you say there is no God, as you do in secular humanism, or you say that all gods are basically the same, which is basically progressive, uh, uh, sort of progressive self-made American religion. In every single case, you are making an exclusive truth claim that has the potential to exclude. You're making a statement about ultimate reality. So I think, I think one of the best ways to do it is just to admit the ways that you're exclusive, to admit that yes, the Christian religion does say that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and Lord. And let's just take all of our exclusive views and put them out on the table and have an honest, honest debate about them. I think that's a lot more honest than saying that all religions are the same.
Jesus is the ultimate truth, but that doesn't mean that all other religions are totally wrong. As a matter of fact, you would actually expect to find truth in the other religions of the world for three reasons. First of all, God has partially revealed himself in creation. This is what we call general revelation. That is through nature, through God's sense of right and wrong written on our hearts. This is what we call general revelation that comes to all of humanity. Now, specific revelation is in God's word, the Bible, and in his son, Jesus Christ. But we believe that God has partially revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The Bible says you can look out at a starlit night and you can learn certain things about God. You can learn that he's powerful. You can learn that he's organized. You can learn that he's awesome. You can learn that he appreciates beauty. You can also look into your heart and know certain things about God. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Sir Isaac Newton who is considered one of the smartest men that ever lived, one of the greatest scientists. He was a physicist and a mathematician. He said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. He says, just look at your thumb for a moment. Just the mere fact of, you know, your thumb is just a miracle. There's so much we get to do because of our thumb. And Sir Isaac Newton said that just the mere existence of an opposable thumb leads him to believe many things about God. Next page of your study outline. Human beings are made in the image of God. Verse 14 of chapter 2 of Romans. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The Bible says that all of humanity, because we're made in the image of God, that we all have a sense of right or wrong written on our consciences, written on our hearts. Deep down, we know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Here's an interesting example. Matthew 7 verse 12 is what we call the golden rule where Jesus said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, interesting thing about this golden rule. Do you know what's found in almost every teaching, starting with Confucius? You will find a form of the golden rule. You'll find it in Confucianism. You'll find it in Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, rabbinic Judaism. Uh, You'll find it in the Greek and Roman ethical teaching of the time. But here's what's interesting. It's always found in the negative form. That is, don't do to other people what you don't want them doing to you. And then Jesus comes along and he states it in its positive form, do to others what you'd have them do to you. But there's a certain truth that's written on our hearts as a result of what we call general revelation. Then number three, every heart hungers for God. I love Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. He, God, has also set eternity in the human heart. In every human heart, there is just a sense that there must be a God. There must be life after this life. And the Bible says it's because he has stamped eternity on our hearts. Don't you feel deep down that you were made for more than this? That you were made for more than this life? That there must be something beyond it, and that something is eternity that God has set in the hearts of every human being. I saw research recently that even with the increase of secularism and the years of communism in various countries, 
only 4.5% of the world's population is atheist. And that number is shrinking all the time. And this is not Christian research. This is secular research. And they found that because of the birth rate in Islam and the birth rate and the conversion rate, of Christianity. That is, Christianity is the fastest growing movement in the world. It's the largest, and it's also the fastest growing because of two things, reaching other people for Christ, and we simply are having more babies than atheists are having, okay? So keep at it, you guys. You, you that are up here on dedication, good job, good job. Now, Islam is growing because of, of birth, a uh, high birth rate. Not a conversion rate, but mainly a birth rate. But Christianity is growing birth rate and conversion rate. And what they are finding that in 40 or 50 years, the average number of people, the percentage of world population that are atheists is actually shrinking despite the rise of modernity, uh, you know, the modern culture, uh, secular humanism. It's actually shrinking the number of atheists in the world as we become more sophisticated. How can that be? Because he has also set eternity in the human heart. Deep down, we know there's got to be a God, and we just know there's something beyond this life. So you would expect there to be some degree of truth in all the religions of the world uh, because of general revelation, because of these things. Now, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? And it's interesting that it's usually not non-Christians that raise this, uh, this argument. It is usually Christians that struggle with this. Well, what about that young boy in India that's never heard of, of Jesus Christ? And he dies never even having heard the name of Jesus. Uh, what about that? And here, we won't know the answer completely until we stand before God, and then we'll understand completely. But here are some possible helpful thoughts. Number one, the Bible is a practical book and does not answer hypothetical questions directly. Very interesting. The Bible really doesn't spend much time dealing with hypotheticals. It mainly, almost entirely, deals with practical matters. This is the information you have. Now act on that. Number two, no one will be saved by religion, whether that's the religion of Islam or Hinduism or the religion of Christianity. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, not by works, not by religion, not by ritual, not by a list of do's and avoiding a list of don'ts, not by works so that no one can boast. And then number three, and this may be the most important one of all, we can be sure that God will be fair and just, okay? Now, having said that, that doesn't let us off the hook. Part of that young man that has not yet heard about Jesus is our fault, all right? That's why we give to world missions. That's why about a million dollars of our budget will go to world missions. That's why we build all of our budget for reaching people for Christ locally and globally. Um, that, th th this is our responsibility. It doesn't let us off the hook, but having done what we can, that young man's fate will not be determined by our obedience or lack of obedience. We can be sure that God will be just and fair. In Genesis 18, verse 25, the Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I love that saying, all that I know of my creator leads me to trust him in that which I do not understand. All that I know and understand about God in my limited knowledge leads me to trust him in the parts that I don't yet understand. And so I am sure that in the end, God will be fair and he will be just. Now, what should we do with what we've studied uh, here today? Let's have the praise band come back up for a final number. And as they come up, 
let's, let's ask this final question. What should we do? Well, number one, we have no excuse. If you're within the sound of my voice, if you hear what I'm uh, preaching uh, right, right now, uh, we, I, have no excuse. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Don't make the mistake of putting it off till another day. Don't make the mistake of, of saying, uh, when I'm older and I've kind of lived a fun life for a while, then I'll get around to it. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a, a salvation? We have no excuse. We are responsible for the knowledge and the information that we have. Number two, we need to be positive. The Bible spends very little time attacking counterfeit religion. It spends almost all of its time talking about the truth, and we should do the same. Now, there's a place to point out counterfeits, but they say that most people that are trained to find counterfeit dollar bills, you know what they do? They spend all their time with real dollar bills or $100 bills. They spend their time sleeping with money and feeling money and smelling money and tasting money, the, the real thing. And that's what enables them to spot a counterfeit. And the same thing is true for us. We need to spend our time in the truth, and then we'll be able to identify uh, that which is uh, counterfeit. And then number three, we need to be respectful. Every person is made in God's image. And so uh, even if they have differing viewpoints, we need to treat them graciously and humbly and respectfully. But then in spite of all those things, number four, we need to be bold. Okay, Even though we live in a pluralistic society, much like the first century A.D., the Greco-Roman world was as pluralistic as Southern California. By pluralistic, I mean there were different religions and all kinds of different views. Remember, they talked about the Athenians would just hang out um, on the mount there just discussing the latest ideas. And so our culture today looks very similar to the culture Um, in which the Bible was given. And in that culture, here's what Paul had to say in Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We need to be bold. Do not let the prevailing attitude that all truth is the same and that you're narrow or intolerant if you believe some truth to be more truthful than other truth. Don't let that beat you down and keep you from being bold. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. If you have a cure for a disease, and you know somebody with that disease, it is not arrogant to share that cure. It is not pushy to share that cure. It is not intolerant to share that cure. It is loving to share that cure. I remember one of our pastor's wives, Mary Corstens, was one of the last cases in L.A. County of polio uh, because the Salk vaccine came out just after she contracted polio. There was another lady connected with our church in a wheelchair, and I finally heard her story after a number of years. I knew she was in the wheelchair because of polio. And they said, you know what her story is? When she was a little girl growing up here in Los Angeles, she played hooky from school the day they passed out the polio vaccine. And she missed it. And as a result, wonderful Christian lady spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. It is, it is not arrogant, pushy, or intolerant to share the truth that will help a person go to heaven for eternity. It is the loving thing to do. And so we must be bold. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And I want to give you that chance right now. If you've never committed your heart to Jesus, uh, what did the Bible say? How shall, what will happen if we ignore so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If you look in the upper left-hand corner of the next page, you'll see the steps the Bible talks about. It says, first of all, you've got to admit your condition before God. Written on our hearts, we know we need forgiveness. We know we need a Savior. We know there's right and wrong and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we believe that Jesus Christ is God's only solution to that condition. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we choose to take that polio vaccine. We choose to take that cure. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. But if you take the cure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, you will cross over from death to life. And I want to give you the chance to do that right now. Would you pray silently with me as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you, Father for your deep, deep love for us. And thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said.